Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. O'Toole, do you remember our really good friend Diane in North Carolina who brought us to the River Rum Film Festival? Of course I remember Um, Diane. We had dinner with her, we watched movies together, we talked to her all the time. An unforgettable week. Okay, she's not my friend anymore. <gasps> what, what what happened? Did she watch Silence of the Lambs and not <laughs> no. like it? No, she did watch Silence of the Lambs, which she couldn't remember having liked. And she did understand the feminist point of view of Silence of the Lambs. But here's what she sent me. Ready? I think. Okay. Health scare of the week. Okay, and it is? Watching too many movies is bad for you? <laughs> Binge watching shows on Netflix and other videos on demand services may take a significant toll on your sleep, reports Time Magazine. An international team of researchers had 423 young adults complete a survey assessing their sleep habits and how often they watch TV. More than 80% were binge watchers, meaning they had within the previous month viewed back-to-back shows on any type of screen in one sitting. I mean, are you serious? (laughs) Now, how do they know? I'm not done. Let me just roll through it. In most cases, these people didn't set out to watch three or four consecutive installments of a series. It just happened. Three or four consecutive? Seriously? Okay, anyway. (laughs) The episode ends, a character may or may not have died, and we're hooked, says co-author Jan Van Den Bolk from the University of Michigan. Compared with participants who didn't get sucked into a show, the binge watchers reported more fatigue, more symptoms of insomnia, and heightened alertness at bedtime. Overall, they had a 98% higher risk for poor sleep than those who turned off the TV earlier. She suggests setting an episode limit before sitting down to watch a show and doing medication. Not medication. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't need medication. But she's saying do meditation or relaxation exercises before bed. So, Diane, we're we're over. There's nothing more to say. Okay. Are you going to try to walk your way around this? Seriously? Well, I've always found this an interesting statistic. And this is some very old research. But way back when, they proved that you actually burn more calories sleeping than you do watching television. So if those binge watchers are sleeping less... Those binge watchers? Do you mean me? (laughs) Well, but shouldn't they be better rested? Let's call a spade a spade. You can say you binge watchers. <laughs> but you would think binge watchers then would be better rested if they're burning fewer calories than people who are actually sleeping no, through I think those your hours. your brain is supposed to go into like REM and stuff, you know, like not, nice try, but no way. Anyway, Diane, it, we're over. And you were going to come up for the Hampton Film Festival. You are uninvited. <laughs> and there you go. Moving right along. Do you have any news today? Well, I loved our comment from our listener, Val. She sent us some very interesting picks for the list of six that we did on biopics. Uh-huh. Coal Miner's Daughter. I know. I can't believe Girl I missed Interrupted, it. Yep. based on Susanna Kaysen's book. I didn't know that Girl Interrupted was real. Yeah. The woman who experienced it, she was at McLean Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which, you know, has seen the likes of Sylvia Plath and... They get quite a few celebrities. The father in Infinitely Polar Bear. He was at McLean Hospital in Cambridge. There you go. Now, I saw two trailers this week, and I was wondering if you saw them as well. One was for a new movie called Breathe with Andrew Garfield from the Amazing Spider-Man movies and Claire Foy from The Crown. When I first became paralyzed, I wanted to die. My wife told me I had to live. Your life is my life. Agree, yes, yes. That's based on a real story, but I gotta say, that Claire Foy from The Crown, she sure can act. Yeah. In the other movie, have you seen this one, Stronger, 
with Jake Gyllenhaal and Tatiana Maslany, who's so fabulous and orphan black. But Hollister, good as she is, I can't bring myself to do it because it is another based on a real story around the Boston Marathon bombing. I'm going to be there at the finish line for you. I'm going to make a big sign for you. It doesn't show up for anything. <laughs> and then he shows up. I went to the movies to see Tulip Fever, and the four previews were all uh, movies that are coming out in September, October, based on real stories. It was unbelievable. One was about Westinghouse uh, electricity, looks fascinating. I mean, they, one right after the other. And isn't it interesting that two stories are doing so, you know, doing so much box office right now? I love that about it. I think it's great. Now, was one of those Emma Stone playing Billie Jean King? Yeah, we're going to talk about that later in our podcast. Um, but also, did you read... Now, you know I'm a Homeland supporter, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. You, now, wait, you got to, I think, season three, right? I think it was season three. Okay. Definitely post-execution, post-blowing yeah, up of the yeah. White House. Well, after season six that ended, um, there's a whole group of people who actually took out a full-page ad in the August 23rd edition of the Hollywood Reporter to get the attention of the show runners. And they have this hashtag that they're using, not our homeland, to protest the series treatment of veterans, um, those who suffer from PTSD and survivors of stroke or sexual abuse, and the demise of the you know beloved character Peter Quinn. Now, you may remember in a podcast at the end of season six, I did say that I think it's one of the strongest performances I've ever seen on television. And basically, um, Quinn, who's played by Rupert Friend, was a, you know, he's a black ops CIA agent and he suffered from a stroke and then drug addiction uh, during this, this last season. In the last episode, Quinn sacrificed himself to save former agent Carrie Matheson and the president-elect Elizabeth Keene. And Alex Ganza, who's one of the show's creators, responded... And I quote, until now, I have refrained from commenting publicly on the death of Peter Quinn, believing that Rupert Friend's heart-wrenching performance should speak for itself. I have not changed my view. Suffice to say that I mourn the loss of Peter Quinn as much as anybody, and that character was created not to denigrate, but to honor the men and women who devote their lives to keeping America safe. In my eyes, he died a hero. End quote. I thought he died a hero too, so I'm not quite understanding where they came from, but Everybody has a point of view, and I just thought I'd, you know, share that there's some some dissent around the latest Homeland season. And on other drama in the news, what about the Wonder Woman drama? Have you been following that? No, I just saw how it set all kinds of box office records, and Patty Jenkins is now the most successful female director of all time. Well, drama, drama, ready? Okay. So, <laughs> James Cameron actually made the following statement. Quote, oh, this. Mm-hmm. All of the self-congratulatory backpatting Hollywood's been doing over Wonder Woman has been so misguided, he told The Guardian. She's an objectified icon, and it's just male Hollywood doing the same old thing. And Patty Jenkins responded which, with, I think, an amazingly solid response. James Cameron's inability to understand what Wonder Woman is or stands for to women all over the world is unsurprising Though he he is a great filmmaker, he is not a woman. Jenkins wrote on the Twitter post late Thursday night, if women have to always be hard, tough, and troubled to be strong, and we aren't free to be multidimensional or celebrate an icon of women everywhere because she's attractive and loving, 
then we haven't come very far, have we? And it's funny because her criticism is exactly what bothered me about Carrie Matheson. Remember, I said, why can't they just allow her to be a strong, fabulous, brilliant woman? Why do they have to make her bipolar? And, you know, when we were talking about Wonder Woman before, I said something that I really liked about it is that she wasn't sexualized. So it's interesting, this discussion of the objectification of Wonder Woman, Mm -hmm. because I thought she was very much less an object. I know. You had said, yes. And I think she would have been. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, what's Cameron thinking? Well... I guess James Cameron at this moment is not king of the world. (laughs) I'm the king of the world! Okay, so I did uh, watch something on television this week because our Tuesday trailer this past week, and if you follow us on social media, every Tuesday we put up a bunch of trailers that we think might be of interest. But the Tuesday trailer this week is the much already talked about Emma Stone performance. She's playing Billie Jean King in Battle of the Sexes. Uh I decided that in order to understand the enormity of what Billie Jean King did, there's a whole series that HBO did on sports people. The next Peabody goes to Billie Jean King, Portrait of a Pioneer. This account of Ms. King's life reminds us that her achievements extend far beyond her remarkable career as an athlete. But I always had all these things bubbling up in me. If God gave me this gift, I was going to do everything in my power to make this world a better place. Along with Billie Jean King, Margaret Grassi, producer for HBO Sports, accepts the Peabody Award. Make sure you know about Billie Jean King. She's still out here representing us, as you can see. She's representing all of us. She's still pushing the boundaries and she's still being brave. It was done in 2007, and I didn't see it then, but I saw that it was up this weekend, probably because of the US Open being played at Flushing Meadow, and I watched it and I thought, this is such a good prelude to the Billie Jean King Battle of the Sexes that's coming out in a few weeks. So I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And I wanted to quote her last line, And the last line in the documentary, she says, women were supposed to be happy getting the crumbs. We were supposed to be thrilled with the crumbs that were thrown to us. And she said, I wanted the cake and I wanted the icing too. I wanted the whole thing. It's a great line. Wow. Yeah. So what did you see this week? Okay, I saw the film Marjorie Prime that won the Alfred P. Sloan Feature Film Prize at Sundance this year. And it's a philosophical meditation on what makes us human, on love, on loss, and mostly on memory, how we construct memory. Wait, is it a narrative or what? what It's a narrative, Uh yes. It opens, I'm sure you've seen the trailer, it opens with Lois Smith, who's one of our acting treasures. She was in Five Easy Pieces and East of Eden. She's almost 87 years old now, but she's talking to a hologram of her dead husband, wow. a much younger version. And Wait, is this the one plays? that takes place in a house? It takes place in a house. Okay, yeah. Yes, it does. The, it's really kind preview. of a one-location well, okay, yeah. shoot. John Hamm plays the hologram. I mean, if you're going to have a hologram, it might as well be John <laughs> Hamm. So yeah. at Sundance, they actually had a hologram at the um, opening night party, and so Gina Davis said people were referring to it as the holoham. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Walter, there is someone... In my mind, I'm trying to figure out who it is. It's just me. It's just Walter. John Hamm I've always loved in period pieces. So this, you know, he plays a younger version in the future. 
you kind of forget that this is supposed to take place in the future. I mean, there's two shots of kind of translucent cell phones, but otherwise it feels very much current day and it feels very much like a play. So Hollister, as you pointed out, it's one house, one location. It seems sort of odd to me. Was it done in an odd fashion? The preview seemed odd, yeah. It's got long bits of dialogue, lots of exposition, but it works. And in fact, it is based on a play, the play by Jordan Harrison, which came out a couple years ago. And it's interesting, the playwright, he wrote it while his grandmother had Alzheimer's. And so in real life, his parents wrote a notebook for his grandmother, recounting facts about her life to help her hold on to her oh memory God. Is that where the notebook and was her identity. On? Not the notebook, but it was the basis for his hmm, play. Interesting. So he thought, you know, what if a hologram, which nowadays with Siri and Alexa and, you know, all these creations, it's not that far off into the future. What if a hologram could provide companions to someone losing their memory? So Lois Smith, she starred in the play... And she brought it to the director, Michael Almeryeda, who adapted it for the screen. Hmm. And rounding out the cast is Gina Davis and Tim Robbins. So they play a very believable couple. Okay, but you know, that's so funny because Tim Robbins was married to Susan Sarandon. And I always think of Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon in the same breath. And so therefore... I don't know. It's a sign of something. I don't know. I was totally (laughs) thinking the same thing. I don't... Did they ever get married? Or were they just life partners? You mean you haven't asked him yet? Tell me. Is he your husband or your father? What's interesting is Lois Smith had also worked with Tim Robbins before. Do you recall the part? No, I have no idea. What was it? Dead Man Walking. Oh, huh. Which you've cited before, which starred... Susan Sarandon. That's right. That's you see, there's only 10 people on the planet. I thought they met on... Um, You're right. Uh, it begins with a The B. baseball movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bull Durham. I yes, think they met on exactly. Bull Durham, where he was the younger guy. But Dead Man Walking was written and directed by Tim Robbins. Petty infringements, compromise, betrayal. All relationships are impossible. Oh, Marjorie, the things you forget. Stay with me a while. I'll be right here, Marjorie. I have all the time in the world. This is just a a funny clip I want to play here of John Hamm when he got the call from his agent. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was pitched to me. It was like, well, uh, Lois is your wife, and Tim Robbins and Gina Davis are your kids. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) I'm in. Where do we start shooting? But I thought, Hollister, that you would like it because it says a lot about memory. For example, Gina Davis, I'm going to play a little clip here. She cites William James's study of memory. When you remember something, you remember the last time you remembered it. So it's always getting fuzzier, like a photocopy of a photocopy. I'll remember that now. If you're going to compare this movie to others, I thought, okay, it's definitely like her. Did you ever see that? I did not like With her. Joachim Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson? Okay, that movie was much lonelier and more depressing. I thought it was extremely depressing. And this is not depressing, but it does raise some interesting questions. Like, for example, what age would you choose to remember someone at? Well, I I would hope that I would like to remember the person at their happiest, whatever age was their happiest, not a specific age for everyone. And yet, if you're losing your own memory, you might choose an age where they can kind of help bolster your memory. memory. (laughs) (laughs) 
aspartame, Diet Coke, it's killing me. But well, you know, it's funny because there are two references in the movie where it reminds you, oh, right, this is supposed to take place in the future. One is they refer to the movie My Best Friend's Wedding. The other event is The Gates. Did you ever go see that Christo's exhibition in Central Park no. that he did with his wife, Sean claude You never saw it? Nope, I didn't. I could have sworn we had a whole discussion about whether or not it looked like a car wash. Are you talking about when he, the guy from France came over? Yes. Yeah. Offhand, if you had to say what year that was, what year would you think um, it was? It was in the early 90s? 2005. It was? And again, this yes, which it's funny because Hollister, I remember no, going you know to what? see the, the gates. No, you know what? The one I saw was not in 2005 because I wasn't living there in 2005. So it must have been something else. Or your memory's playing a trick on yeah, you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I remember so distinctly that was the day I bought my first digital camera. Now, this just goes to show the vagaries of memory, because if you said, when did you get your first digital camera? I can no longer remember life without an iPhone that comes with a high-def camera on it. So in terms of that, that feels like a million years ago to me. Yeah, yeah. But in other yeah. ways, it was only 2005. And I still carry cameras sometimes, so yeah, so it's much more recent for me. Your poor old mother was born in the 20th century. Try to be patient with me. Hollister, I was feeling pretty good about the movie until the credits. <laughs> Uh-oh. I told you not to stay for those credits. You've got to listen I to know. me. I know. And then guess what happened? Um, I don't know. The, the tape broke and, and they didn't run. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> they listed the executive producers. And whose name did I see? I have no idea. John Hamm. And then whose name did I see? I don't know. Tim Robbins. And then whose names did I not see? The women. That's right. So here's Gina Davis, who mm. runs her extraordinary institute about gender equality. And here's Lois Smith, whose idea it oh was to turn the play into a movie. And I thought, I can't imagine that they just were offered the I'm EP credits. I'm surprised she for some sort of credit. But hey, you know what? Whoever gets the movie gets the movie. You know what I mean? But now, okay, three last points. One is it it's inspired a lot of discussion about would you want one of these holograms? Yeah. Exactly. You know, is there somebody who's no longer physically present in your life where you would say, you know, I wouldn't mind having their company every now and then? Well, you know, it's funny that you bring that up because I think more and more people have lost the experience of being there in person and maybe the memories aren't supposed to be exactly as they were. So in some ways, I like my memories. You know, I like them unedited by watching them over and over again as they actually happen. Well, John Hamm was asked this, and he brought up a really interesting point. He said, you know, it's not that far into the future because he said, may she rest in peace, but Carrie Fisher was a hologram in the last Star Wars movie in that scene with Christopher Plummer. He also mentioned a movie in Hollister. I was curious if you saw it. He was in a movie with Robin Wright a couple years ago called The Congress. We want to scan you, all of you, your body face, your emotions, your laughter, your tears. And we want to own this, this thing called Robin Wright. I have to take care of my son. Another movie that Michael Almerieta did, which again, kind of cerebral, brought up a very interesting point. It was called Experimenter. Rug, pillow, hair, grass. Incorrect. Hundred and... 65 volts, strong shock. Let me out of here. I will not be part of the experiment anymore. He he says he's not going to go on. Please continue. He he says he doesn't want to go on. We must continue. In nearly every case, the essential results are the same. 
They hesitate, sigh, tremble, and groan, but they advance to the last switch, 450 volts, because they're politely told to. I'm Stanley Milgram, and this is an experiment. And I know, Hollister, you know a lot about the Holocaust, and he was so haunted by the Holocaust and how humans could do what they did to one another that he set about constructing a series of psychological experiments at Yale. Yep. It was really shocking, yep. so to speak. And now yep. you saw Tulip Fever, you know, right? I did. In 1634, Amsterdam was captivated by a flower. Rich and poor gambled on the tulip market. <laughs> Sophia was a beautiful orphan, chosen by one of the richest men in the city. Love, honor, and obey. In 2000, the Weinstein brothers optioned the book before it was a bestseller, and they actually were going to do the film with Jude Law and Karen Knightley to play the roles that ended up being Alicia Vikander. It just kept getting postponed and all these issues around it. Finally, we're talking 17 years later, it comes out. And the New York Times totally panned it, saying that Tulip Fever delivers a wilted period piece, but I don't agree. You know, it takes place in 17th century Amsterdam, Oh my God, what a storyline. It's like Greek tragedies combined with intrigue, drama. The cinematography is like the Dutch master's paintings and it'll blow you away. And then in between these cinematic moments, there's this action that sort of takes place that that rolls along quite quickly. So you don't mind the slowness of those particular um, options. And, you know, it was written by Tom Stoppard, the playwright, who I love. I love his work anyway, but he also wrote Shakespeare in Love. And then Deborah um, uh, Magich, who wrote the book, she got a screenwriter's credit um, as well. And she wrote Marigold Hotel. So, and she also wrote Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 version that is one of my favorites, actually. Which had Nikira Knightley. Right. And I think, you know, everyone does a great job and, you know, it's funny because they, he's painted, this person she falls madly in love with, um, it, you know, he paints her and she's wearing a pearl e- earring. And I think that was sort of like a nod to the lady with the pearl earring. And mm-hmm. um, I just, I, I can't imagine why everybody's saying it's so terrible. This is so silly. They, I, the Weinstein brothers actually wrote an editorial in Hollywood, I think to the LA Times, almost apo- before it even comes out, apologizing for it. Well, you know, there are problems with every movie that comes out, and this has a few problems, but, you know, it's sort of like, really, you're going to hedge your bets that way? It was supposed to be, it was highly touted that when it came out, it was going to be a big contender for Academy Awards and everything else, and then they slipped it in at the end of August because they, I guess they weren't getting good responses when they were testing it in the box office. But I I must tell you, I, I think that it's really, really good. You two really think you'll carry this off? And it's exciting. And, you know, those period pieces don't tend to be exciting. But there are moments I just was like, please, God, let this happen. And in the end, funnily enough, somehow everybody ends up where they're supposed to be. And that, too, is something that's totally unusual for a, a Greek tragedy. You know, so... 
I, I, I highly recommend it. I do. I do, I do, I do. Now, the Weinstein brothers weren't doing themselves any favor when they also put a moratorium on reviews and said none could be published until 1 p.m. on opening day, which, of course, never usually bodes well. well I also, why? I mean, you know, what are you, control freaks? I mean, come on. Uh, I don't know. I probably am the only one giving it a good review, but I really liked it. Now, a friend of mine who I often go to the movies with, her friend went and said it was terrible. So I don't know anyone else who liked it other than me, but I like me and I enjoy going to the movies with me. So I'm telling you that, um, it's very exciting and it's beautiful and it's tragic. And in the end you walk out feeling like, well, isn't that interesting? Everybody sort of ended up where they probably should have been. I don't know. I think it's fascinating. It's a fascinating movie. You're going to be Alicia Vikander's new best friend because you also liked The Light Between Oceans. I did. I liked her in it. You know, I mean, I, I thought that movie dragged a bit, but I liked her in it. I think she's an amazing actor. And there's something, and when she's on the screen, you know, you can't take your eyes off her. She's just mesmerizing. Now, I heard that my Judy Dench is only in it for a nanosecond. Well, I wouldn't say a nanosecond. I think she's like five or six scenes. Um, so she's in it for five minutes, maybe. Playing a nun. Um, she plays a nun. She does it very well. Um, but a solid nun, <laughs> you know, a thoughtful nun, a, a bright nun. nun, a compassionate nun, a stern nun. She plays a lot of nunisms when she's playing her role. You've not been painting. No offense. And there seems to be general consensus that Christoph Waltz was terrific. Did you like him? Everybody is really good in this movie. Everyone. They'll say, look at that lucky old dog. Didn't he have a lovely young wife? First to flower, first to fall. It's got a ton of people. Like I saw Matthew Morrison yep. is in it, who I loved on Glee. Mm-hmm. I saw that Owen from Grey's Anatomy, Kevin McKidd is in it. Oh my gosh, I don't remember seeing him. I'm wondering, maybe he had a Scottish accent. Well, maybe he was so good, I didn't recognize him. I don't know. And Jack O'Connell who Angelina Jolie discovered when she cast him in Unbroken. Everybody in it is really strong. Every single person in it is really strong. You know, it shows that the tragedies of life can sometimes end up where you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Interesting. Yeah, I I really highly recommend it. I do, I do, I do. Okay. Which now leads us to our list of six. Okay, so we're going to do six movies that got panned that we actually enjoyed. Do you want to start us off? You know, it's so funny because you just mentioned the Shawshank Redemption, and that's my pick. Um, did it Did it get panned? It got panned. It came out in 94, and let me just... I, I pulled a couple of things. Shawshank Redemption is supposed to be a drama, but it's pitched somewhere between an intense thrill ride and a romantic buddy comedy. Not a go. <laughs> and the Washington Post, guess, get this, they said the movie seems to last about half a life sentence, <sighs> becomes incarcerated with its own labyrinth sentimentality, and leave it to pandering first-time director Frank Darabont to ensure no audience member leaves the film unsure of the ending. Heaven forbid a movie should end with a smidgen of mystery. And that was uh, Dustin Howe, whose, whose reviews I admire from the Washington Post. It got totally, totally tanked. And it didn't even do that well in the box office. And since then has been written up. I think it was in, it, you know, I read that it was in the list of the 100 best movies from the 20th century. Consistently. Shawshank Redemption has remained number one in the top 250 on IMDb for the last, what, five, ten years straight? Um, 
that performance will echo through the halls of time. How many Shawshankers do you meet in your life who just drop in front of you and do that pose? <laughs> <laughs> it's it, a, a lot, but they, they somehow, uh, like 90% of them can't get the title right. So I, they see like Scrimshaw reduction. <laughs> And, uh, that could be our blast from the past film for this week. Okay, I love that idea. Okay, I'm going to start with an oldie. Okay. It's a Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant movie, Bringing Up Baby, hmm. which many people today consider a classic. You know, it's the one with the dinosaur. Yeah. Something horrible has happened. Well, don't tell me about it. Just get out of it as best you can. No, no. And please stop following me around. Okay, for this is just a little excerpt from the New York Times review from March 4th, 1938. To the music hall yesterday came a farce which you can barely hear above the precisely enunciated patter of Miss Catherine Hepburn and the ominous tread of deliberative gags. In Bringing Up Baby, Miss Hepburn has a role which calls for her to be breathless, senseless, and terribly, terribly fatiguing. <laughs> she succeeds, and we can be callous enough to hint it is not entirely a matter of performance. <laughs> oh my goodness, that really is, is a that pan, isn't it? scathing or what? I know. Huh. And it's also a good reminder that all these people that we think of as the greats from the Hollywood golden era, when they were living their careers day to day, they had it no easier than our actors today do. You know, with the reviews and the auditions and the box office flops. And this was a box office flop then. Um, there, well, there you go. So the next one I'm choosing, I agree with panning it, but it did really, really well. So I thought it was a perfect pick for me. And it's Forrest Gump. So this is great. This is from Owen um, uh, Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly. It is glib, shallow, and monotonous. A movie that spends so much time sanctifying its hero that despite his innocence, in quotes, he ends up seeming about as vulnerable as Superman. <laughs> I really like that, and I actually agreed with it. And then the other review that I pulled out, judging by the movie's enduring popularity, the message that stupidity is redemption is clearly what a lot of Americans want to hear. Jonathan Rosenbaum, the Chicago reader. I thought that was really an interesting message, and I thought a little bit over the top. My mom always said Life was like a box of chocolates. And I agreed with no, them. I didn't to... like Forrest Gump. Okay, so the fact that you didn't like it either makes me feel better about my second pick because I haven't seen it in a very long time, and I'm not saying this movie is anything to write home about, but I, f I like the cast so much that I'm putting it on my Wait, list. Are you someone... this so you don't feel... But what's the movie? Someone Like You from 2001. Huh. And I'm not saying that this movie is just worthy of all kinds of accolades, but the cast is so endearing. It's Ashley Judd, Hugh Jackman, Greg Kinnear, and the person I really loved in this, of course, was Marissa Tomei. I loved it. I loved the cow part. I think it was fabulous. I loved it, loved it, loved it. Wait, so did it get panned? It got panned. Oh, well. And do you know who directed it? No, who? Tony Goldwyn. Huh. Now, here's the um, review I just wanted to quote. This one's from Entertainment Weekly. So Owen Gleiberman again said... It was originally called Animal Husbandry, and while the producers were throwing away that title, they might have done well to chuck the movie along uh, with it. Oh, ouch. And the that title, Animal... He really is Right? Brutal. So Animal Husbandry was actually the name of the book. It was a best-selling novel by Laura Zygman, who also wrote Dating Big Bird, huh. which just from the title, I think I'm going to have to check out. I like that you chose that movie. Good for you. But I have to end. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my beloved pretty woman in this category. <laughs> 
Okay, so it was met with vitriol from certain critics who deemed this like Cinderella story as a tale of greed instead of love. They were so wrong. But anyway, Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gliberman again was the most vocal, and he gave the film a D, saying he was challenging its values under this pretense that Robert's character becomes a better person when she lands a rich guy and learns to cry at the opera, which I think is so shallow of him. But he later wrote a mea culpa um, maintaining that this thesis that he'd been talking about, he would now give it a B instead of a D. He might have been subject to grade inflation. Yeah, <laughs> Ask me. Yep. And um, <laughs> so when Vulture magazine left it off the best rom-com since when Harry met Sally, people rose to to defend it and said, you have to put it back on. So, um, But then the other, this other person, Richard um, Corliss from Time Magazine, I remember him from way back when. But anyway, he said, no one has yet made a romantic comedy in which, say, a toxic waste dumper falls for a terrorist hijacker, but Pretty Woman comes close to finding the least admirable characters to build a feel-good movie around, which is probably what I think O'Toole would have said, too. So I'm going to give that to you in this moment in time. Little. I'm not sure it made me feel good. Big mistake. Big. Huge. I have to go shopping now. But okay, for my last one, I decided to choose one that we've actually done a podcast about. Tell me. The Dressmaker oh, from yeah, last year right. with no, Kate Winslet, Judy choice. Davis, yeah. I don't know why you've come to this hole. Who lives at Mad Molly's now? She's back! The murderess is back! Okay, here's the quote from Kyle Smith at the New York Post, who gave it zero points. Okay, I thought you might appreciate this since, you know, you're a little down on James Cameron this week. The Titanic is now the second biggest disaster Kate Winslet has ever been associated with. Her new one, The Dressmaker, is like some hellborn alloy of film noir, campy melodrama, high plains drifter, and the Darwin Awards for people who die in moronic accidents. But I will say, when we reviewed that, I did, I totally understood why it got panned. It was very... It could have been told in 20 minutes. I, I mean, I, I well, you know. I thought the cinematography was beautiful. I, I thought the fashions did. were beautiful. No, but this reviewer was so surprised by the plot that he must not have known it was based on the book mm-hmm. by Rosalie Hamm, the Australian writer. And I much preferred the movie to the book. Huh. So I thought they that's did an amazing choice, job like of striking a tone. Yeah. Especially that's not my go-to genre. But I thought it was definitely better now, than did, the general reviews. Did you have a bunch that you were considering but didn't do? You know what's funny? I can't wait to hear from our listeners who I hope contact us at screenthoughts at gmail.com because I kept thinking there must be a million movies and they're just not occurring to me. Okay, so I just want to say, because I know Val's going to say it, Annie Hall, Fargo. I, you know, I just want to say that. Annie Hall, Fargo. Were they both panned? Yeah, they both were panned. But did well at award season. Exactly. La di da, la di da, la la. Yeah. <laughs> I think the common theme here might just be reviewers just might not know a thing. I know, yeah, exactly. Including us. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye.